Welcome to Disruption Blueprint with Shannon Spotswood from RFG Advisory. In this podcast, we help advisors grow their net worth, build their businesses, and maximize their independence. We've built an award-winning platform with innovative technology, comprehensive service, and a team of individuals who are experts in their field to serve advisors. Join us for this journey where we explore everything that has to do with running an independent advisor practice as we bring together successful advisors, industry experts, and innovative minds who are on the bleeding edge to challenge the status quo, foster new ideas, and create a path for advisors to unleash their growth potential. Now, on to the show. Disruption Blueprint was previously known as War Room Huddle. Please continue to enjoy this content as you build your practice for the future. So this is a very special episode of War Room Huddle. I am joined by Rick Waddell, my business partner and chief investment officer here at RFG Advisory. And you're in for a real treat because as CIO of RFG, he has a truly remarkable uh, background. It's always fun. We say, you know, me and Rick's mom are his like two biggest fans as we give his his introduction. But There is no podcast that we can do where we dig into the value that you're bringing to our advisors and the impact that you're having on the industry without providing a little bit of, a little bit of room for me to brag a bit on you. That's, that's fine. Uh, You know, you know, I love these podcasts. Uh, I feel great after every one of them. It makes me just feel wonderful. All right. Uh, So Rick was uh, raised here in Birmingham, Alabama, which is the global HQ, as I like to say, of RFG advisory. And uh, hub, international finance hub, international finance hub. Exactly. You you know, the headline we're writing, whoever would have thought the RA of the future was built and born in Birmingham, Alabama. Yep. That gets me out of bed in the morning. So, you know, Rick's got this really unique background and it's incredibly important as we think about how advisors spend their time and the value that we deliver from a platform perspective. So growing up here in Alabama, he graduated from uh, Mountain Brook High School, went on to Harvard, where he was uh, studying applied mathematics. Yes, that's correct. Graduated magna cum laude. Yes, it sounds way more impressive when you say it. Thank you. You're absolutely <laughs> welcome. From there, he joined Bain Capital as one of the uh, the first employees in what is now known as an international juggernaut in um, in in finance. They, a couple of years later, they sent him off to Stanford where he got his MBA. And when he uh, shared his resume with us, he very casually and like even in, I think it was even in small font, said that he was the Henry Ford scholar at Stanford. And I'll I'll be honest, I had to Google it. (laughs) I was like, what is this Henry Ford scholar business, faker? Uh, And then I Googled it and it turns out he was number one in his uh, MBA program at Stanford. So uh, just a tremendous accomplishment. They give you a very small plaque. It was very uh, it is, small. It is, a, it is a plaque about this size. Yay. About, about three inch by three inch. Uh, and it's like uh, a paperweight. Yeah, it is. It is. It really is. A paperweight of greatness. Yes. Although I think somewhere in the B school library, my name, <laughs> like behind the corner next to the snack machine or whatever else, there's a list of all the people that have gotten it. Uh, and I think Let's my name's there. there too. Uh, okay. Okay. Fair That's, enough. We're, we're going to, we'll we're take searching a searching pil- for the sign. Pilgrimage. Yes. Yes. It's somewhere. like a historical marker. It's, it's a, it's a, 
it's a very obscure historical marker. So yes. Harvard undergrad, Stanford MBA, and then you know, twelve years at Bain Capital, where when you left, you were the head of consumer fixed income and helping to run a very large portfolio for them. So this is not your typical, you know, this is not your typical CV of a chief investment officer of an of an RIA. And it was an incredibly important pillar as we were building RFG 2.0, which was the delivery of institutional investment management. So what I would love, you know, to kick us off today is for you just to put some color around that. I mean, it's an exciting story being at Bain during that that really defining time, defining chapter of what they've become and the impact that they've had. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, this is a this is an interesting story uh, in the sense that, uh, like any good story, it begins with there was a girl, uh, and uh, you know, I was I was graduating from college. I had been dating a young woman for the time for a long time, and uh, she was. Uh, she was from the Boston area, and so I looked to find a job in Boston uh, so that I could be near her, and I interviewed with a whole bunch of different uh, places, and um, one of the places that, uh, you know, wanted me to come on board was this tiny little shop called Sankity at the time. Uh, it was the fixed income affiliate of Bain Capital. Uh, it had about 14 or 15 investment professionals at the time, $300 million under management. And it was just this, you know, it was, it was a small thing. And I loved that about it. Um, I loved the people that were there. It was uh, sort of energetic and dynamic. And so I wanted to be near my girlfriend. This seemed like a perfect fit. And so I took the job. Um, and my girlfriend and I broke up three months after graduation, but then I had the job after that, right? And so you can't exactly go into your boss's office after three months. You know, you've got contractual requirements at that point. You took a signing bonus. You're staying. Um, and so it just evolved. Uh, you know, it was a it was a very exciting time uh, for me. Uh, a lot of responsibility, kind of drinking from the fire hose, if you will. Um, you know, I was an analyst. I didn't know anything, but, uh, you know, when there aren't that many people and you're at kind of a startup shop, you're asked to do a lot of things and expand and grow in ways that you've never really expanded or grown before. Um, you know, two years later, they gave me my first portfolio to manage. Um, it was textiles and apparel. Um, I want you to rewind the clock a little bit in 2003 textiles and apparel in the United States, not a super exciting space. Uh, but it was a space that, you know, they needed some somebody to cover and I was tapped to cover it. Uh, and so, you know, a $25 million portfolio when you're three years out of school is like the greatest thing in the world. Um, and so a year after that, uh, I went off to business school and they brought me back and, uh, you know, I picked up consumer and just kind of ran with it. And, uh, you know, before you knew it, you looked up and we were a $30 billion asset manager with 200 plus investment professionals, you know, with six offices on four continents. So, um, it's just a, a, a huge and wonderful experience. And if you ever have the opportunity, you know, it's, it's the, that old Google example, yeah. right? Like, if anyone ever offers you a seat on the rocket ship, you don't argue about whether or not it's an aisle or a window, you just take the seat. Um, and if so, if you ever find that opportunity, you know, and that's one of the things that I love about RFG, is that sort of like group of really smart, really talented individuals just sort of building something bigger than themselves. Um, and that's, you know, what I had at Bain. And, uh, and, you know, when I looked up and decided it was time for that next, you know, page in my career, I knew that that was what I kind of wanted to find again.
And I think, you know, that's really the unifying thread of our story at RFG. I think both of us had this this experience working on the institutional side of the business, working in these like funds and these firms that grew very large in a short period of time. And we're, we, you know, I call it seeking the intangible. You call it this intersection of opportunity and talent to build something bigger than yourself. So you had the pick. I mean, I remember when we were <laughs> recruiting you and Bobby and I, you know, had started the search for a CIO in Alabama. We extended it out to the Southeast. We click, quickly realized what we were looking for. We needed to, to conduct a, a nationwide search. And you know, I think through good fortune and by the grace of God, your resume got passed to us. And uh, Birmingham's an interesting job market it, in that. In that, uh, yes, yes. It, but when when it came down to it, you know, Wall Street was calling. You had a very attractive background and experience um, to be able to offer. So why RFG? Why RFG? Well, let's see. Um, for one thing. When we talk about that seeking the intangible, it requires um, somebody who's willing to kind of go out there and do crazy things, right? And so, you know, when you think about what we were starting to do when we were building RFG 2.0 and sort of building the RIA of the future, you know, I like to liken it to, you know, I had some offers from some established hedge funds and some other folks like that where it was, you know, very much a little bit of rinse repeat with what we had done previously at Bain, maybe at a more senior level, maybe, you know, at a different level in the organization's history, there's a little bit rinse repeat, right? These were established businesses. And then I had Bobby and Shannon looking at me saying, Hey, we got this great idea. Um, we are going to change the engines on the jetliner while it's flying. Right. And you know, like you're going to come over, you're going to be on the retail side and the job is going to look a little bit different and it's going to require you to stretch yourself in different ways that you haven't been stretched before. And I was like, you know what? That sounds awesome. Like, let's go do that. Right. Cause you only get one life. Uh, and you know, if you think about your professional career as being able to reinvent yourself a couple of different times through the course of your professional career, you know, I think that's appealing, right? Um, it's appealing to be able to do different things. And then when you meet people at the organization that you're joining and you get excited about what those people are, who they look like, what motivates them to come to work every day, and you can just see the talent, like it's you know, it's, it has a different fit and feel to it. And I, I liken it to, you know, there's the, that classic fable, right. Of, uh, building the church in the middle ages. I know I've told you this one before, <laughs> but right. Like, so there's, there's a guy, you know, they're, they're building this cathedral, right. And, uh, this guy comes in and he interviews every one of the workers, right. And he's, he walks up to the stonemason and says, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, well, I'm, you know, carving the stone to go in the archway and it all supports itself. And he walks up to the carpenter. What are you doing? Oh, well, I'm sawing the wooden beams that go in the pews and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then they finally get around to the janitor who's just, you know, pushing a broom through the church. Uh, and, you know, they ask uh, this individual what they're doing and they say, well, I'm building a cathedral, right? Yeah. And it's like, if you find a place where the vast majority of the of the employees of the of the associates whoever they are say well I'm building a cathedral like that's a great culture to be a part of uh, and that's you know really the reason why I'm here the job itself matters less than the culture and the climate and the energy yeah. that you encounter every day when you walk into the office are you an advisor looking to make the move to independence 
RFG Advisory is an innovator in the wealth management industry with a winning culture and a fully integrated tech platform designed to help advisors take their practice to the next level. Let us get to know you at rfgadvisory.com. So clearly joining RFG Advisory and now, you know, the the majority of your day job looks very different than it did at Bain Capital. So just what do you do and 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 what do you love about it? Ah, okay. So you know, my job encompasses several roles. Let's start um, at what I'll call table stakes, right? Um, so the investment process itself, what do we do? Um, we spend a good part of every day looking through the investment portfolios, the investments that we manage, um, just looking at those securities and thinking about, you know, are there rotations that should be made? Are the securities behaving the way that we think we, they should be? Are we appropriately diversified? Um, is it time for a rebalance, you know, scanning through accounts and looking at people's individual positions and positioning and thinking about, you know, how blocking should those accounts- Blocking and tackling of being a PM. The blocking and tackling of being a PM, which I, I mentioned here, but I just want to say there's a big difference between how that works in an institutional setting versus how that works in a traditional retail setting, right? So um, it's not just about, you know, whoever the last wholesaler was that passed through or- asking somebody to do your analysis for you. That happens a lot in this industry, actually, uh, you know, where one of the wholesaler firms will say, hey, we will perform this complex analysis on your portfolio in exchange for allowing us to recommend how your portfolio would be better if you would use our product. Um, that's not exactly the way that we go about the investment process. Um, so like, we spend the money to subscribe to Bloomberg and we use the tool frequently to make sure that the you know portfolios are well diversified. I think this is and, a, an, and I don't mean to cut you off, uh, but I think this is a really important distinction. Yeah. And it was a very intentional decision to build the RIA the, of the future, to build a platform really dedicated to supporting independents and independent advisors and their clients. The, the expectation and rigor of being a portfolio manager on the institutional side of the business looks and feels and walks and talks very differently. Well, I mean, I think, I think it starts with, you know, you trust no one other than yourself, right? So if you didn't do the analysis, um, you don't really trust it. And that's, you know, where we start from on a day-to-day -day basis of, you know, digging into these funds, digging into their individual holdings, digging into the ETFs, and just making sure they're performing within the parameters that we sort of originally established. And that is, that is the day-to-day -day blocking and tackling of the business. Um, you know, the fun stuff over and beyond that is doing stuff like this, meeting with clients, meeting with prospects, uh, giving presentations. I, I laughed before I stepped into the studio. I was actually updating a presentation for a lot of our clients. Um, and, and doing, uh, that I'll be giving next week. I'm actually in three separate cities next week. Rick on tour. Uh, Rick on tour. That's exactly right. So, uh, three nights, three different cities, uh, you know, presenting to clients and just talking to them about the markets and what's going on and our views. And that type of personal interaction is very important. Uh, right. I mean, this is, this is their money, uh, right. It's, it's not, it's very different 
in that regard than the institutional setting because you know who your clients are, right? Like these are clients that might have, you know, 500,000, 200,000, a million dollars invested with us, maybe more. Um, but they're interested in knowing who it is that manages those portfolios for them. And whether that's an in-person meet and greet, whether that's a presentation that they see a give or a podcast like this or a video that we shoot out or whatever it might be, um, it's important. That level of client interaction is important and is lost on, I think, a lot of the people in the industry in terms of, you know, these are clients, they want to feel like they know, they want to know who it is that manages their money. Um, I pulled some some stats on that and congratulations. You were recently named by Think Advisor, a 2021 luminary. <laughs> Thank you. So we get to I go appreciate like that. Harvard, Stanford, Henry Ford Scholar Luminary. I kind of want a lighted, a small lighted sign in my office that just says Luminary. <laughs> uh, and if I could get one of those, that'd be fantastic. As long as it has like an off switch. An so on and off switch, yes. So I can be like not so illuminating <laughs> right, today. Exactly. Perfect. Uh, but I did pull some stats because you know, to to your point, that this is a highly personalized, highly customized experience, both for the advisors that you partner with as well as their clients. And in the last, you know, 12 to 15 months, you've recorded 60 client-facing videos. You've had 13,000 total video views, 11,000 hours of watch time. As you mentioned, there's been countless one-on-one -on -one meetings, countless dinner presentations, virtual presentations with advisors and clients. And and one of my favorites, like indicators of truly, you know, next week, Rick on tour, multiple years of diamond status on Delta Airlines. <laughs> I still think the greatest moment for me along this journey was when I found out that my mom uh, was actually watching all of the video content uh, that got sent out. Um, no, no, yeah. no, no. You've got to tell the story about being on the fridge. Oh, that is true. Uh, I, I'd been giving presentations for a little while and I got to know a client uh, in the uh, Shreveport area and uh I was scheduled to come out and do a dinner and I get this text message pop up in my phone from this particular client um, that just has a picture of his fridge. Uh, and it's, you know, our client age profile. A lot of these folks have grandchildren. Um, this particular individual did. And so there were pictures of his grandkids and some artwork and the little letters with the magnets. And then there was my flyer. Uh, with my picture and the date of my next presentation sort of circled. And he just said, hey, you made the fridge. Thought you'd like to know. Uh, and, and in fact... Um, the photo of that text actually still hangs in my office. Uh, so if, uh, you know, if you're out there and you're a client and you ever do that, please send me the photo, uh, and you can make the photo <laughs> board. Um, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's actually really great because when you're on the institutional side, you never really get to know your clients, right? And I, I can't even, I'm not even allowed to mention who our clients were. You can imagine who they are. They're big universities and endowments. And these pension are plans pension and plans. And these are, you know, funds that are managed on behalf of other people by a group of managers that have a team of consultants <laughs> that work with them on selecting the investment manager for the investment management team that manages money on behalf of the other. And so you never actually get to know the like, it's not like a student 
student at one of these universities ever came up to me and was like, oh, hey, I understand that you manage our endowment, right? Like right. that doesn't happen. Um, but in this role, it really does. Um, and it, it adds this personal touch and this sort of personal connection to the money that you're managing um, in a way that you never really get on the institutional side, right? Like you take your job really seriously when you have met the people that you are managing their retire, like you're managing their retirement assets. And it kind of gets you like, it gives you a real motivation um, that you never really had before, right? It's not about like, oh, you know, I better make sure that I do my best job today because, you know, so-and-so's several billion dollar endowment right. needs another couple million bucks. Uh, it's more about like, oh, like uh, this is about like Susan and Charlie's retirement. And, you know, I, I have fiduciary duty to them. And not only do I know them, but I've met them and I've met their kids and they were at the barbecue last summer. And so, you know, along with a whole bunch of other folks. And so, like, I, I need to get on it today because these are the people I serve. Um, and it's just it's a great feeling. It's a it really calling. is. It is. It, I mean, it, it sounds weird because in finance, there's not a lot of whole, you know, a lot of talk about higher callings. But I really feel like, you know, when you when you interact with that individual who's scared, right, who is frightened about the markets, they know they need to be invested because let's face it, like the days of being able to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to go buy treasury bonds and just live off the interest for however long. Those are long since passed. And so these are individuals that have to come into the marketplace. They need this in order to make it, you know, they need this in order to make their money last through retirement. Being able to give those individuals confidence and being able to give those individuals a path to get from point A to point B and have confidence that their money is invested wisely. I mean, it really feels good at the end of the day, right? To know that like, their money is being watched after by somebody who's qualified to do it, that their money is being invested properly. It's not a sales gimmick or this and that and the other, and that they're going to get from point A to point B without so much worry and fear in their lives. Like really, you know, I don't know. I bring it back to mom. I think about mom uh, and her assets. And uh, anyway, um, it's so just nice. I'm going to give a little plug before I'm going to take a like hard right turn. Oh boy. Uh-huh. Uh, so the plug is, you know, one of the things that I think is your superpower is that you're a fantastic communicator of complex topics in an engaging and understandable way. So as I mentioned, you know, check out our YouTube channel because there's 60 videos that Rick has recorded. He records almost on a weekly basis, a market commentary, and then whatever is the topic du jour that we feel is important to, 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 either take a stand on or lend our voice to the conversation, whether it be cryptocurrencies, inflation, what's happening in, you know, in with the Fed, what's, you know, just whatever is going on in the marketplace outside of that market commentary. So a little plug there, your videos really are awesome. So check those out on our YouTube channel. All right. Hard right turn. Okay. One of the, um, I would say one of your skills that RFG really benefits from and in turn our advisors benefit from is that you've got this long career in leverage finance. And so we do spend a significant amount of time helping our advisors to craft their succession plan how to structure a deal, if they're looking to join and need a forgivable loan. 
And this is honestly, we'll probably need to do a second podcast just talking about advisor succession and deal structure and all the rest of it. But I thought it would be fun just for this context. And I want to put it in, in, in just one of those topics, which is succession planning. We're in the midst of a succession planning crisis in the industry and one that I would kind of boldly and provocatively say we're not going to solve. So 64 is the average age of a financial advisor. About 15% have a succession plan despite a global pandemic and the retirement wave that is sweeping the nation in the baby boomer set. Those numbers really aren't moving. So what is your advice to advisors as they think about, should I go down that path and think about being intentional with my succession? Okay. Um, So I'm probably going to say something that's going to rub a number of advisors the wrong way, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is um, there is this idea out there in the industry, particularly amongst, I will call it the mid-sized advisors, that um, having the lowest expenses that I possibly can is a good thing. Um, And that's fine, except for the fact that if your business is not transferable, like if you can't walk away from your business with minimal impact to the business, it severely limits the valuation that you will receive in a succession planning process. Okay. And I just, I just, I, you know, I I kind of phrase it this way. Okay. It's one thing to have, you know, maybe some administrative personnel that are handling paperwork and maybe some operations and some billing and this and that and the other. It is entirely another to be having, you know, to have junior advisors that are working with you on the management of the practice, other financial planners, truly a team approach to your practice. And it's hard. I get it because you have to hire these people and pay these people. And these people aren't cheap, right? So, you know, whether you're bringing them in as a W-2 underneath you and you're paying them a salary or whether they're giving them maybe a split rep code and giving them some some of the payout of your existing clients or whatever else, you know, this is this is this costs you money. Uh, and it may be hard for you to justify, at least in the short term, what does that expense look like? And, you know, why, why wouldn't I just keep that money and continue to do all this work myself? And the answer is that when you get to the age of 65 and you all of a sudden say, okay, well, what is my practice worth? If your practice is not capable of you stepping away from it, and having minimal disruption to the overall business, then it's worth whatever you can convince somebody to buy the clients from you for, okay? And fundamentally, that is limited by the cash flow of the underlying assets. And fundamentally, that means you're going to get about somewhere between two and a half to two and three quarter times revenue. Like, that's just that's just where it is, okay? I'm, I'm just going to tell you that if you're trying to sell your book of business to another advisor that is not super well capitalized, et cetera, then that is where those businesses transact at. And if the buyer is more developed than that, but they see that all you're really selling is a list of clients and an unwillingness to have anything that goes along with it, they're not going to pay more than the market rate, right? So it's really one of those things, if you're really diligent about building up 
enterprise value in these successions. And we see all these crazy multiples that are thrown around, right? Like you're worth eight times your EBITDA. You're worth, you know, seven times your EBITDA, earnings before interest and tax, earnings before owner's comp. You're worth eight, you know, whatever these multiples are. Yes, you are if you have built an enterprise, if you are one of four partners that are working in the practice together so that when you leave, the other partners can take over your share, if you are, you know, the senior partner with three junior partners that can step in to fill your shoes, then yes, you are worth those multiples. And if you are a one man or woman band where it's you and an admin against the world, then you are worth about two and a half times revenue. And that is just where it ends, right? Um, and you know, it's, it's one of those things like you either build an enterprise so that you can subsequently sell it or you run your practice until your boots fall off. Uh, and that's, you know, where, where, where you end, I guess it's die with your boots on. I, I messed up that metaphor <laughs> at the end. Sorry about that. Yeah. That's one we're going to have to come back into, uh, into the podcast studio. Cause I think there's a lot we could talk about and, and that, you know, that our listeners would really benefit from, from your experience, you know, I certainly, as we've structured deals for our advisors and worked on a lot of these um, these succession strategies, there, you know, your favorite saying that we've all adopted, the art of the possible. Yes. But there is the underlying linchpin on this is that the possible is contingent upon how you've built your practice and how early you've started thinking about creating that enterprise value and waiting until you're 65 and like, now I want to maximize value. It's, it's challenging. It is. It is very challenging. It is very challenging. All right. A lightning round. Really okay. Fast. Lightning round. I'm not good at fast answers. So go okay. ahead. Do you believe in writing white papers? No, I do not. Uh, I fundamentally believe that video content is the wave of the future. Uh, I'd much rather get into a podcast studio and just talk about whatever it is, because let's be real, um, nobody wants to read a PDF ever. Uh, you know, that was really cool about 10 years ago. Um, it is not cool in today's day and age. Uh, people digest content on their phone or on their iPad. Uh, and so they want to be able to pop open a video or listen to a podcast or something else like that. They do not want to read a white paper about it. Uh, plus I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay in the podcast, uh, format. I'm a little bit like, I don't know, white papers feel too much like term papers. So, uh, we're, we're not writing those. And no one ever said I had a total blast writing my white paper. You know, it's funny. Like I wrote about when we first got here, I was like, I'm going to write a white paper on market timing. And like, I think we printed 400 copies and I think 395 of them are still in the copy studio. It's funny. You can't see them. Gibson's off camera cracking up, uh, because he knows that this is true. Yeah. Um, and it's actually a great paper. Like I was really proud of it. No one read it. No one cared. <laughs> uh, but we get like great reactions to the YouTube videos. So we're going to go yeah. where the content you deliver the content to folks, how they want to consume it. One of Rick's, um, signature hallmarks of his, uh, conversation style is, and then there was a study. So what's your favorite study? Oh, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to pivot this and give you my least favorite study, okay. least favorite study, because I, I heard this on the radio rolling in this morning and it just, it speaks a little bit to, you know, like 
I, I had one of these kids come up and ask me the question, you know, the college student, like, hey, should I take statistics and math and everything else like that? And, and it's funny to me because I never thought I'd be anybody's role model. But in any event, like this kid wanted my advice. And I was like, well, do you want to be happy? Or do you want to understand how the world works? Because if you understand math and statistics, you'll kind of understand how the world works and how data gets processed and everything else like that. But it's going to make you really angry when you hear these studies and this data that comes out that's just absolutely on face ridiculous, right? And it speaks a little bit to like how you can manipulate data to make it say what you kind of want it to say if you're a little dubious, which by the way, runs rampant in this industry. It really makes me angry. But I'm, I'm, on the, I'm in the car the other day and I'm listening to the radio coming in. And there's this study from the University of Chicago that just came out that's like, for every hot dog you eat, <laughs> your life expectancy <laughs> goes down by 35 minutes, right? And for every peanut butter and jelly sandwich you eat, your life expectancy goes up by 35 minutes. And like, I'm sitting in there in the car and I'm just fuming. I'm so angry because the the DJ starts going on about like, well, they've got to cancel all of these like hot dog eating competitions because those are just die. They, I mean, everyone, they eat 65 and they take like three weeks off their life. And I'm like, that's not the way that math even works. Um, but let's be real. Like, these these variables they're what's called indicator variables okay they're not they're not actually it's not the hot dog that's subtracting 35 minutes off your life it's the fact that if you eat a lot of hot dogs, you're probably eating out a lot, eating a lot of processed prepackaged food. You're probably eating fries and drinking beers with that and this and that. And so it's an indicator variable of an unhealthy lifestyle, right? <laughs> like that's the way that math works when you do that regression. In the same way, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is not some sort of magical cure-all where when somebody's in the ICU, they're like, oh, quick, get the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like, that's not the way that works either. But if you eat a lot of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, it probably means you eat at home a lot, you're making your own food, you're probably having fruit or water with it or something else like that. Maybe you work out, like, I don't know. And so it indicates a healthy lifestyle. And so when you regress on these things, it's like... It's just, it's just a real example, and it makes me ragey, and I get a little ragey, and I know this was supposed to be the Exhibit lightning a. round. Uh, but it just, it's a great indicator of how people can take statistics and manipulate them to say exactly what they want them to say without an actual understanding of the way that math works and putting that kind of stuff into context. And so I heard it the other day, and you asked the question, you and it just made an, me rage. I'm going to tie this back and, and wrap us up on that because it's interesting. It, it speaks to, in some measure, why it's so important to have a financial advisor and why it's so important for that financial advisor to have someone who they trust managing the money. Because ultimately all of this is human emotion. It is. It is. And I, you know, we could do an entire separate podcast and I would love to film this Ooh. podcast and come back. Uh, but I, we could do an entire separate podcast on like myths and marketing gimmicks and pitches that are dubious in the investment management industry, right? Yes, like we, we could go through ream after ream after ream that make you laugh, but also make you shudder in the way that people market and package investment we opportunities. We might do that in disguise. 
Okay. Yeah, exactly. That'd be fantastic. That'd be fantastic. But yes, it is a topic that uh, just kind of makes my blood boil a little bit. Um, and so, and God knows, uh, you know, when I get ragey, I get talkative. So, uh, you know, I'd love so, to come so back and get my, it in the podcast. Uh, my lightning round. Rick, thank you so much. I promise we'll, uh, we'll get back in here and film some more on War Room Huddle. Thanks so much, Anne. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Blueprint podcast. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at www.rfgadvisory.com or schedule a call on our advisor resources page. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Content here is for illustrative purposes and general information only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice, nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific training strategy. Information here may be provided in part by third-party sources. These sources are generally deemed to be reliable. However, neither our guests nor RFG advisory guarantee the accuracy of third-party sources. The views expressed here are those of our guest. They do not necessarily represent those of RFG Advisory, its employees, or its clients. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by RFG Advisory or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. Securities offered by registered representatives of private client services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by investment advisory representatives of RFG Advisory, LLC. RFG Advisory or RFG, a registered investment advisor. Private client services and RFG Advisory are unaffiliated entities. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where RFG Advisory and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advisory services may be rendered by RFG Advisory unless a client agreement is in place. RFG Advisory is an SEC-registered investment advisor. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of RFG by the Commission, nor does it indicate that RFG or any associated investment advisory representative has attained a particular level of skill or ability.